Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled The Role of Emergent Therapies for Retinal Disease in Clinical Practice is jointly provided by Clinical and Patient Educators Association and Ivista Medical Education Incorporation. This activity is supported by an independent medical educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporation, Apellis Pharmaceuticals, Iveric Bio, and Outlook Therapeutics. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to the role of emerging therapies in retinal disease in clinical practice, this roundtable discussion. My name is Rishi Singh. I'm your moderator for today's session in Cleveland Clinic, Florida. And I'm joined by this by this expert panel of individuals who are going to give us some really great talks and latest and greatest therapies within retinal disease. First, Dr. Mark Barakat from the Retina Consultants of Arizona, uh, Dr. Arshad Kanani from Sierra Eye Associates, and Dr. Christina Wang from the Baylor College of Medicine. Thank you all for joining today's program. So we're going to be covering these learning objectives. You know, anti-VEGF therapy has been around for many years now, and we have had great results with it, but yet see a lot of the drawbacks to its therapy and clinical practice today. And so we're going to talk about some of the limitations regarding this therapy and what we've seen in our own hands, long-term studies, as well as short-term issues with this drug. And we'll talk about the clinical trial data for newer therapies, which may extend the durability of this drug over time, as well as help us manage some of these re neovascular retinal conditions with alternative therapies. In addition, we're going to be focusing on uh, geographic atria as the new frontier for managing patients with vision loss. Uh, we have some emerging therapies, one that's FDA approved and one that's soon to be FDA approved for this condition, which will help potentially uh, help patients with this condition, which is certainly one of the leading causes of legal blindness beyond the, the common ones we take care of in retinal practice. And our, our activity partnership today is with iVista Medical Education and with Clinical and Patient Educators Association. And this is provided jointly with those programs. And as it's supported by an educational grant for Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Apellis, Iveric Biosciences, and Outlook Therapeutics. So let me turn it over to the first presentation for today. And that's going to be by Christina Wang, who's going to talk about GA therapies. And at the end of today's three talks, we're going to spend a good amount of time discussing uh, these studies and what they mean as far as our clinical practice changes go. So with that, I'll turn it over to Christina. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Rishi. It's great to be here with you and Arshad and Mark. And it's really a pleasure to present on this topic, which is extremely pertinent right now, given that we finally have our first FDA-approved geographic atrophy therapy and perhaps a second one by the end of the year. So I'm gonna provide a really brief overview. You know, we, it, it, there's a lot of discussion and buzz right now, and I'm excited to not only present some of the latest data, but also hear some of your thoughts at the end when we have our panel discussion. These are my disclosures, and of no, I am a consultant to Iveric Bio. I will be talking about one of their leading candidates in this presentation. So I was asked to talk mostly about pegcetacoplan, our first and only FDA-approved therapy for GA, and also Avis and Captain. And I will be focusing on those two in this next 10 minutes. But I thought really that we should start off just by a brief mention of how broad and bustling the investigational landscape for geography for geographic atrophy is at this time. And that by no means is this list comprehensive. You know, GA is a blinding condition. It's thought to affect over 5 million people worldwide, over 1 million Americans, and it's a leading cause of blindness, like you said. Thus far, until recently, we haven't really had any therapies to treat these patients. And so it's great that there's so much interest and research going on in these areas. Because dysregulation of the complement pathway is thought to be a significant contributor to the pathogenesis of GA, of course, we have several of these that work in that way. So for example, Avis and Captive Pegel, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this slide deck, inhibits at the level of C5. We're gonna talk about that soon. We also have ANX007 in phase two. This is a C1Q inhibitor working on the classical complement pathway. And then of course we have uh, others like GT005, even a gene therapy expressing complement factor I, and also an antisense oligonucleotide looking at complement factor B inhibition that potentially may show some promise. There's also other drugs in the investigational pipeline that work through other approaches. For example, elamipratide unfortunately did not meet the primary endpoint um, in the phase two study. However, 
it did show some promise in being able to protect photoreceptors and it's being more closely looked at. It's a mitochondrial modulator. We also have rizitegonib, an anti-integrin, small peptide molecule. We've got Keter A1 antibody, even oral doxycycline is in a phase three. And of course, something really exciting is to remember that a lot of these therapies, unfortunately, only slow down the progression of the disease. And so we really are looking to other complementary therapies to help potentially restore vision for our patients. And that really lies in the area of cell-based therapies, which is also an area of great interest right now. So again, I am going to focus on pegcetacoplin and avacincaptid in this talk. And we're going to start off with pegcetacoplin. This is the first and only FDA-approved therapy for geographic atrophy. It is a pegylated cyclic peptide. It binds to C3, blocking cleavage of C3 to C3A and C3B by C3 Convertase, and it was FDA approved on February 17th of just this year. So really very recent, and it works at C3, which is really a common meeting grounds of all three complement cascades. It was approved based on two registration studies called Derby and Oaks for pegcetacoplin. And these are interesting. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the details shortly, but these two trials enrolled patients who were uh, 50 years old and, excuse me, 60 years old and older who had visual acuity of 2320 or better. G lesions were measuring anywhere between two and a half to 17 and a half millimeters squared. And that is important to note that either with or without subfoveal involvement was a part of the inclusion criteria here. If the lesions were multifocal, at least one of the lesions had to be 1.25 millimeters squared. And essentially they enrolled almost 1300 patients randomized into these groups. So either pegcetacoplin was dosed monthly every other month or sham. And sham was broken up into monthly and every other month just to preserve masking. The primary endpoint of the Derby and Oak study was at 12 months. They looked at the change in total area of the GA lesions based on fundus autofluorescence. And then they went through 24 months and looked at a variety of other pre-specified secondary endpoints, including BCVA, low luminance BCVA, reading speed, and even NEI VFQ. And then some of these patients rolled into a three-year open-label extension study called Gale, which we'll learn a lot more about in terms of long-term outcomes. So here's the efficacy data to start off with. And an interesting thing happened in this set of trials where Oaks, one of the two pivotal trials, did meet the primary outcome. And the other one, Derby, just narrowly missed it. And so what you're seeing here is essentially, let's start with Oaks. You can see a 21% reduction of GA lesion growth rate over one year in the monthly arm, 16% reduction in the GA lesion growth rate in the every other month arm, which is in blue. And both of the, those are compared to sham, which is in the gray line. And then Derby, you can see the numbers were a little bit more modest. They did not reach statistical significance, significance again. But one thing that you can see in both of the trials is that you can see that the curves begin to pull apart as you enter um, the, the uh, months 12 through 18. And you can see that here and all the way through months 24 as well. You can see that the curves continue to pull apart after that first year and that effect is magnified. Interestingly enough, even though this was not the primary endpoint uh, in Derby, the percentages and reduction of GA lesion growth rate did reach uh, statistical significance when we were looking at the nominal p-values. So when we look at secondary outcomes, again, no statistically significant difference in terms of BCVA or some of the key secondary endpoints that we mentioned earlier at the 24-month time point, like maximum reading speed, microperimetry. They even had this index called the Functional Reading Independence Index. However, and I think one of the uh, challenges right now is really trying to reconcile sort of structure and function in these GA trials. And, you know, does it matter? Do we, should we be treating these patients if we see structural improvement or anatomic improvement, but not necessarily functional improvement, at least not at the 24 month time period. And that's really a topic of discussion right now, because many of us believe that eventually, yes, along a long enough time horizon that we would appreciate that. And interestingly, there's a lot of other studies going on right now, including various post hoc analyses. This one was released recently, um, which was published in Ophthalmology Retina, where they used an artificial intelligence driven OCT analysis to look at some of the patients who had been treated with pegcetacoplin in Philly, which is the phase two study. And they looked at the junctional zones of those patients treated with pegcetacoplin, and it suggested possible preservation of photoreceptors. There's other studies also suggesting possible preservation of RPE. There was some data that was just 
uh, presented at Arvo, for example, and also different, different functional measures like microperimetry. So we will learn more with time. Now, what about safety? Well, in terms of safety, there was a higher rate of exudative CNV development noted in the PEG-Cetacopeling groups versus sham. You can see that circled in pink there. One thing I want to point out is that even in the sham group, you can see that just as part of the natural history, there are some patients that will convert to exudative lesions. But definitely, there seems to be a trend, and it seems to be dose-dependent, that there is uh, CNV development with pegsetacopeline treatment. It's something that we'll have to address as we begin to treat our patients. There's also some other adverse events that have been um, monitored closely, including intraocular inflammation and even ischemic optic neuropathy that are being closely looked at. And now I just want to spend a last few minutes here talking about what we might hear about next. So Avis encapted pegol is a pegylated RNA aptamer that inhibits cleavage of C5 into C5A and C5B. So it works a little bit further downstream from C3, which we just talked about, but essentially it inhibits the priming of inflammasomes and formation of the membrane attack complex. And we'll likely hear about this soon because the PADUFA date is August 19th. So later this summer, pretty exciting. This would potentially make it the second approved agent that we have. And this was approved based on two pivotal studies called GATHER1 and GATHER2. They were similarly designed, uh, but some, with some slight differences. In GATHER1, they looked at a variety of different dosages, for example, and all patients were treated monthly. Whereas in GATHER2, you can see they were treated monthly for the first year. And in some of those patients in the second year were still treated monthly, and some of them were treated every other month. But both of them had primary analysis readouts at month 12. And again, looking at the mean change in GA uh, area lesion growth. And one of the key differences, even though everything else was very similar in terms of inclusion of lesion size between two and a half to 17 and a half millimeters squared, in this study, the patients were not center point involving. So that's one key difference between the first set of studies with Derby and Oaks versus the GATHER studies. And additionally, the lesion had to at least partly be involved 1,500 microns from the foveal center. And so let's take a quick look at the efficacy and safety in this set of studies. So both of these studies did meet primary outcome, and you can see that there was anywhere between a 14.3 to 27.4 reduction in the mean rate of growth of the GA area. And again, just like in Derby and Oaks, you see this pulling apart of the curves as you enter past month 12. And gather when we have the next six months after that, between months 12 and 18, where the curves widened. So again, speaking to a potential magnified effect the longer a patient is treated. And again, very similarly, similarly to the other set of trials, there were no statistically significant differences in the visual acuity or the low luminance BCVA at 12 months. Also, a lot of other post hoc analyses that are going on right now, in fact, one that was recently read out showed that there was a 44 to 59% risk reduction in the rate of vision loss of greater or equal to 15 letters in those who were treated with Avis and Captid versus sham over 12 months. And so again, suggesting really trying to correlate structure and function and tie that together so that we can make a meaningful story and a meaningful case for treating our patients. In terms of safety, it's interesting to see how many findings really parallel that of Derby and Oaks. Again, a higher rate of exudative CNV development noted in Avis and Captive Pegel treated arms versus sham. You can see that circled in pink there. Interestingly, there were no ischemic optic neuropathy events or endophthalmitis that I've been, become aware of yet with Avis and Captive. There was one case of intraocular inflammation in Gather One. So I know we're going to talk a little bit later, Rishi, as you said, uh, as a group, but some of the things to just kind of think about, I think a lot of it comes, comes down to patient selection and the timing of intervention. When is the best time to get involved and start treating patients? How do we find these patients in the community? A lot of them actually don't live within our practices. Are we going to dose the way they were dosed in trials? Or are we going to put our own spin on things as retina specialists like we often do? How should we be imaging these patients? How are we supposed to manage the associated CNV that we do see with some of these treatments? Um, and then, of course, just being eye, you know, eyes wide open for any safety issues down the line that we might see uh, in the real world that weren't necessarily detected in the trials. And so I'll hand it back to you, Rishi. Thanks so much. Thank you, Christina, for that really comprehensive review of all of those drugs for geographic atrophy. What an exciting place to be because we firmly have therapies that we might be able to address this. But we'll talk about some of the pros and cons of that in our discussion session. So thank you for bringing up those topics and we'll get to them at the end. And now I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Arshad Kanani who's going to review some of the recent studies of Photon and Pulsar. 
Thanks, Rishi. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Christina and Mark. So over the next 10 minutes or so, I'll be reviewing the results of the phase three photon and pulsar studies. Here are my disclosures. So before we get into the trial design and data, let's talk a little bit about aflibercept 8 milligram, which is the drug that's being looked at in this trial. It's a novel intravitreal formulation, and it is 70 microliters, so a little bit more than what we usually inject. It is a aflibercept, but it is higher dose. And, and the idea is that it's four times higher molar dose compared to the currently approved aflibercept 2 milligram. And the idea is that this can provide longer effective vitriol concentration and enable more sustained effect on VEGF signaling. So idea is, can we maintain disease activity control for a longer period of time because this agent has a higher molar dosing? So let's look at a photon study first. It's a phase three pivotal study. It's a multi-center randomized double mass study in patients with diabetic macular edema. Patients could be naive or previously treated. And patients were randomized into three different groups, aflibercept every eight weeks, that's the two milligram, or aflibercept eight milligram every 12 weeks or 16 weeks. And patients in the aflibercept two milligram group receive five monthly injection as a loading dose versus in the eight milligram group, they only receive three loading doses. So something to keep in mind as we look at the data. And they're randomized one to two to one. And you can see the number of patients, 167, 328, and 163. So this is a quite large study. And, and the primary endpoint was at week 48, and it was mean change in BCVA. So this trial is designed for non-inferiority, like many of the recent trials, while reducing treatment burden by showing greater durability. And the key secondary endpoints included multiple different ones. The one that's important, obviously, is also the, the diabetic retinopathy regression, two-step or more in these patients at week 48. And the study is two years, and there's an optional one-year extension for the study if patients sign up for it. Here's the dosing schedule and dose regimen modifications. So you can see how the dose was adjusted based on disease activity. I think it's important to look at the disease activity criteria, which was greater than 10 letter loss of BCVA due to persistent or worsening DME and greater than 15, uh, 50 micron uh, increase in CRT. So in this program, uh, they've used both vision and disease and um, OCT criteria to extend or decrease treatment interval. And, and you can see how these different groups were extended um, based on disease activity or not. So here are the results. Uh, these are the one-year results. We are waiting for two-year results later this year. Primary endpoint was met in both eight milligram groups. If Flibercept eight milligram every 12 weeks and 16 week had non-inferior BCVA compared to aflibercept two milligrams every eight weeks, as you can see on those curves, patients gain anywhere from 7.9 to 9.2 letters. The eight milligram every 12 uh, weeks met the non-inferiority margin of 15% in the proportion of patients with two-step or greater improvement in DRSS at week 48. And the safety of aflibercept eight milligram was comparable to that of a Flibercep 2 milligram. And I'm going to cover that in the next few slides after I show you the OCT. Here's the mean change in central thickness. Um, as a reminder, patients in 2 milligram group receive five loading doses compared to um, three loading doses in the, in, the 12, uh, in the 8 milligram group. And then you can see that what we see here is that in, in both 8 milligram groups, four weeks after the last monthly dose, you can see greater reductions in CRT compared to two milligram. So something to keep in mind, we do keep see some fluctuations in all group. Uh, remember these are averages. So I think there are many patients who will be stable while some will have fluctuations. In terms of durability, here are the results. So the large majority of eight milligram patients maintain the randomized intervals. And you can see 93% of eight milligram patients maintain dosing intervals of 12 weeks or greater, really highlighting the durability seen in this trial. In terms of mean number of injections through week 48, again, these patients uh, receive different loading doses. Uh, and here you can see around eight in the, in the two milligram group and around six 
in the every 12-month group and five in the every 16-week groups. Here are the safety. I think things I'm looking for is IOP increases or inflammation because uh, volume is higher. We're putting more, more protein here. So when you look at that in terms of intraocular inflammation, it was 0.6% in the two milligram group and 1.2% in the 12 week group of eight milligram and then zero in 16. So all eight milligram group, the inflammation rate was low at 0.8%. There were no cases of endophthalmitis or occlusive retinal vasculitis. IOP, again, to looking at that, you can see 1.2% uh, of patients um, in the two milligram group and 0.3 in the 12 milligram group and all eight milligram uh, patients 0.2%, so really no, no meaningful increase in IOP in these patients receiving 70 microliters compared to 50 microliters. So now let's look at the Pulsar study. So this is a study at looking at patients with neovascular AMD. These are naive patients. Again, just like Photon, it's a large uh, global randomized study. And here patients receive two milligram aflibercept or label after the loading doses. So three loading doses in every eight weeks. Uh, compared to every 12 weeks or 16 weeks with the 8 milligram. And then we also use, uh, they also use the disease activity criteria here. You can see these were randomized one to one to one. The primary endpoint again was mean change in BCBA. This is a non-inferiority study again. And then the secondary endpoints looking at fluid dynamics in these patients uh, treated with higher doses um, of aflibercept. And again, two-year study, and then the extension is optional if patients sign up for it. This is the dosing schedule and regimen modification. At year one, you can see the opportunities to, to extend or decrease uh, interval. I think one thing to highlight here, again, is the disease activity criteria. This is different than what was used in Photon because these are neovascular AMD patients. If they accumulate fluid, it's more of an urgency to treat it. So here, the criteria was used with greater than five-letter uh, loss in BCBA due to neovascular AMD. And looking at CRT, it was greater than 25 micron increase in CRT or seeing new, new hemorrhage or onset, uh, new onset uh, foveal neovascularization. So again, these are AND criteria being used, but these are much tighter than what was used for a photon, rightfully so, to avoid any vision loss in these patients. Here is the summary, primary endpoint and key secondary endpoints were met. Flibercept 8 milligram every 12 weeks and 16 week had non-inferior BCBA compared to every eight week, uh, two milligram of Flibercept at week 48. And when you look at uh, a Flibercept 12 and 16 week groups of it, eight milligram uh, combined uh, had superior drying effect compared to a Flibercept two milligram every eight week at week 16. And here you can see the BCBA Again, comparable visual acuity gains in all three groups. CRT, again, we see a robust decrease in CRT after the initial monthly loading doses in all three groups. And you can see it's equivalent in all three groups at the end of first year. You can see some fluctuations here also. In terms of proportion of patients maintaining uh, Q12 and Q16 week intervals through week 48, 83% of eight milligram Patients maintain dosing intervals 12 weeks or greater, again, highlighting the durability of 8 milligram of aflibercept seen in this trial. Mean number of injections uh, at one year, 2 milligram patients had 6.9 compared to 6.1 in the 8 milligram um, group uh, that was every 12 weeks and 5.2 in the 8 milligram group that was 16 weeks. Safety is again important uh, for a new drug, even though we have used a flibercept for a long time, is larger molar dosing, more volume. Again, things I'm looking for is intraocular pressure, inflammation, and any other uh, signals. We have not seen any cases of ischemic optic neuropathy uh, in either Photon or Pulsar. And when you look at IOP increases, again, just like uh, Photon, we have not seen meaningful increases in IOP in the eight milligram group. And when you look at intraocular inflammation, again, all eight milligram patient combined, it was 0.7% compared to 0.6% in the Flibercep uh, two milligram every eight feet group. So again, no safety signals that are new that were identified in, in, in this trial. So bottom line is uh, uh, we are hoping to have this agent approved later this year. 
And I think uh, the treatment burden for our patients with neovascular MD as well as DME is high. And the hope is that with higher molar dosing of aflibercept, we may be able to decrease the treatment burden uh, for some of our patients. So thank you for your attention. Rishi, back to you. Great. Thank you very much, Ashad. So great. Again, advancements in uh, treatment of retinal vascular disease, as you saw through some of that data. And we'll talk about that in light of current approved therapies and maybe some other things in pipeline that will hopefully move the needle. Uh, let's turn it over to the next presentation, which will be by Dr. Mark Barakat, who's going to discuss uh, the need for on-label Avastin therapy. Mark? Uh, thank you, Rishi. It's a pleasure joining you, Christine and Arshad. Um, as we talked a little bit about on-label Bevacizumab, and here are my disclosures. And when we talk about map, the first question that at least comes to mind is why do we care? Um, and the fact of the matter is, as a community, we love bevacizumab, uh, of course, off-label. So if you look here, we have a, the new patient starts. If you look at a survey of, of respondents, uh, two-thirds of us start people in bevacizumab off-label. In terms of maintenance, a good plurality, possibly half of patients stay on bevacizumab long-term for maintenance. And it's really become ingrained as part of the, the meshwork of what we do in retina. So that's great, but what about off-label bevacizumab? Well, compounding carries risk. And we all know this, but we, we tend to overlook it. Uh, there have been these clusters of infections, there's these questions of silicon oil bubbles, and, and you wonder, what are we introducing into the eye? But additionally, not only does it carry risk, but it also carries some uncertainty. And by that, I mean, if you look at, at what you get in your hand, it's, it's not really the bevacizumab necessarily that you would get in, in the large quantities. So if you look at this, this quite interesting paper, on the right-hand side, you see the control group in terms of the, the um, bevacizumab as is available. And then you look at a compounded bevacizumab on the left-hand side, and if you look and see the concentration of protein, it may not come as a shock to us that a lot of these, if not all of them, are well below the level of concentration that you would expect if you were to get it straight out of, uh, out of the vial. But not only that, if you also look at the, the clustering, the particle size, on the bottom, you'll see the particle size of bevacizumab as it is straight from the manufacturer is a tight spectrum. And, but if you look above it, you'll see a, a wide distribution because you get all these aggregates formed as well. So what you're getting in your syringe in the prepackaged compounded syringe may not be the bevacizumab that you hope you'd get. Well, here we have ONS5010, and this is the uh, investigational ophthalmic formulation of bevacizumab. We've all come to know and love which is an anti-vagif. I won't bore you with those details. I think we're all comfortable with that. And this is the, the phase three pivotal study design that looked at this, this drug. And here you have a superiority trial where in the uh, treatment arm, you get monthly ophthalmic bevacizumab. And in the control arm, you get three monthly loading doses of ranibizumab followed by every third month, Q3 month dosing of, of ranibizumab. The primary endpoint was BCDA gains of three lines or greater. Also, other key secondary endpoints are listed here at month 11. Of course, this was for patients with wet AMD that were treatment naive. And the BCDA range you see on here was between 2050 and 2320. So there are about 228 subjects that were enrolled. As you see, uh, close to 90% completed the study with 103 in the active arm and 95 in the uh, control group and well-balanced. As you might expect, these tend to be uh, predominantly females that were Caucasian and 79, 80 years old. Uh, BCDA, as you can see here, was about 51, 52 letters. Uh, uh, so not, not the greatest vision in the world. And, and baseline CFDs were uh, roughly between 420 and 430. And so the primary endpoint was met. The proportion of free line gainers, as you can see, whether it's intent to treat or per protocol, was between 41 and approximately 42% of patients in the bevacizumab arm, which was statistically significant. And here you see this just laid out uh, over time as well. You see the bevacizumab arm uh, in the light blue, 
um, gaining a robust visual gain with treatment and maintaining that gain with monthly treatment throughout the trial. Key second endpoints also uh, shown here in terms of what the actual uh, BCDA score was. And you have an 11-letter gain in the bevacizumab group, uh, both intent to treat and per protocol, which is also statistically significant compared to the control group. And here you see this over time as well. Again, whether you're looking at the proportion of three-line gainers or whether you're looking at the change in letter score, you see a robust response in the first three months, which is maintained over time and statistically significant in the bevacizumab group. Secondary endpoints, also categorical, uh, five-letter gain, 10-letter gain. Uh, you see almost 70% of patients in the bevacizumab group gain five letters. Uh, 56 or so patient, a percent of patients gained 10 letters or more. And of course, we already know that close to 42% of patients gained 15 letters or more. And these are also statistically significant. Of course, safety is uh, paramount. It's important that whenever we have a new drug coming out. And it's nice to know that the safety signal was well balanced. There's only one case of hydrocal inflammation uh, in this trial, and it was iritis. And frankly, there's just a low incidence of, of ocular AEs uh, throughout all the three trials with ONS5010. So where do we stand now on on-label bevacizumab? So we know there's a high demand for off-label compounded bevacizumab. And this on-label ophthalmic formulation addresses those compounding concerns. Their uh, US FDA VLA was accepted. There's a target BDUFA date of, in August of this year. Conversations with the European medical agencies have gone well as well. As you can see, NORTH 1, NORTH 2, NORTH 3 were the, the trials. We focused mainly on NORTH 2 as it was the pivotal trials, but those have been completed. And with that, we uh, anticipate having an ophthalmic formulation of bevacizumab as part of our arsenal in, this, in, the, in the short uh, near future. With that, I thank you. Great. So really nice presentation, Mark. Thank you for giving that. And so we're going to turn it over to our panel discussion now. And, and why don't we start off with Christina? You know, you presented this, this data on geographic atrophy and arguably uh, some of the most controversial, I think, data out there to date. Um, we see that there is a modest improvement in GA growth. Uh, somebody call it modest. I'm going to quote that in quotes because I, I want to hear from you whether you think that's modest. We have an uh, improvement in in some patients going on to develop three lines of vision loss, and then you have the side effect profile. So walk me through how you're going to talk to your patients about this and what you would kind of rationalize with some of the statements I just made. Yeah, thanks, Rishi, and enjoy the presentations from, from the group. You know, I think it, one of the really interesting things is that when this drug was approved, it was such a historic moment for the community because we have tried and tried and had a lot of failed trials of research um, in, in the past many decades. And finally, we had something that we could offer our patients, even if the uh, effect was what some people deem, quote unquote, modest. And I was actually quite surprised that it wasn't universally welcomed at first until I really started thinking about it a little bit more. And I, I can understand both sides of the conversation because there are some risks associated with, with these types of treatments. And also it's um, there's still a lot that we don't know about the disease and about the treatment effects. So to answer your question, Rishi, you know, however you regard the percentages that I shared with you earlier, I think what's very important to know is that this is a disease that in general for the average patient is going to lead to decline. We It only goes one way, right? And I think one of the hard parts to convey to patients, but it's very important in those discussions is to let them know this is not a cure. This is unfortunately not like the anti-VEGFs of wet AMD at this point, although I hope we'll get there. This is slowing down a negative slope, right? To put it into math terms. And so it, it's, it's sometimes discouraging for people to hear that. But if you think about it, everything that we do in medicine is really trying to buy quality of life for time right? For time, you're buying time. And so even if you can slow down the curve, in my opinion, uh, even if it's quote unquote modest, I still think it's something worth considering. And I'm very um, happy that we do have something to at least offer our patients. When it comes to actually making those decisions, Rishi, I think it gets a little tricky. And I think more so for this disease than perhaps a lot of the other ones that we treat on a daily basis, this is really going to involve shared decision-making with the patient. 
because like I said, there are a lot of unknowns such as who is the ideal patient that we should be treating. We don't really know that quite yet. And additionally, it's a lot of treatments, right? It's every month or every other month, at least if you're looking at what the trials did. And there are some uh, adverse events that have been observed, although fortunately with CNV, which is really one of the most prominent ones, those have responded really well, at least from what we have observed in the trials so far. They've responded well. They often don't need indefinite treatment of anti-VEGF. Um, we have to think about things like ION, and we're looking closely at IOI and, and all of that. So there's a lot of unknown still. But for some patients, having that additional however many months of visual acuity is very well worth it. And I do think that um, having those discussions with each individual person is important. I, but I'd be curious to hear what the rest of the panel thinks about that. Yeah, Arshad, you're very close to a lot of this data. You were a participant in some of these trials, too. Tell us about what your, your take on this. I think, Rishi, I agree with Christina. I think it's uh, it's an important advancement for our field to have one treatment and possibly another one in the future. I think, personally, I think patients and retina specialists are spoiled because of excellent anti-VEGF treatment. I think we need to think of this disease that will progress in 100% of patients 100% of the time. And I think we have to think about it differently, like we used to think about neovascular AMD in the PDT era. So here recently at Arvo, we saw the visual function data that Christina uh, mentioned also in her presentation from both programs looking at uh, functional benefits. And of course, each program looked at it in a different way. But I think conversation needs to go in that direction. If I show patient an OCT image and FAF, and we show the lesions are growing, that's helpful. But I said, if I tell a patient that if you get treatment, this is your risk factor of maintaining, or this is your percent benefit, then I think it's it's meaningful. For example, the data for uh, Everson Kepta that Christina shared, you know, if you if I tell a patient that there's a 56% reduction in losing three lines of vision at one year is meaningful. Or if you looked at the Pexeta Copeland data that in, in the right patient, if it's, you know, you are saving a line of vision with treatment, that's meaningful. So I think the conversations need to go in that direction. And the other thing is, I think Christina mentioned it well, that it's a shared decision-making. I think we have to look at this disease and, and give the risk and benefits of treatment upfront. And I think the patient population that doesn't get talked about in these trials is our patients with neovascular AMD that are getting treatments and that's well-controlled disease, but they all lose vision because of progressive geographic atrophy. I think those patients are more open to get injections because they're used to it and they get them anyway. So I think as a field overall, we are going to learn about it. Personally, I offer this to every patient and then and then make a decision based on where their lesion is, what their activity is, where their vision is, and how compliant they're going to be because essentially we are looking at lifetime of treatment without having a real biomarker of treatment success. So, so I think great advancement, but we can do better and we'll continue to look at new programs as Christina mentioned, and hopefully we have better treatments in the future. Yeah. Mark, Mark, I'll let you comment quickly before we move on to uh, discussing high dose of Flibrisept. Any additional thoughts to offer about this sort of thing? The, the only additional thought, because uh, all, all points are well taken, well, well said, uh, is it's very rare that a new agent and possibly second come out that just change the standard of care. And I think the standard of care bare minimum is to have said conversation with the patient. Mm -hmm. Great, great comments. Okay, let's switch gears and talk to Arshad about, you know, high dose of Flibrisept. You know, Arshad, uh, this study, um, while meaningful, I think has some opportunities to show us a little bit more data. We haven't seen year two data yet. Kind of give me a, a prediction as far as what you think is going to happen in year two based upon some of the year one findings. I think, uh, Rishi, great question, because I think we have seen that the drug is safe and it's working well, and we have seen durability. As you and I know that, you know, in other trials, we have seen vision going down slightly in second year. And part of it is whether it's disease progression or under treatment of patients who needed treatment. So I think I'm very interested in seeing not only just the durability in second year, but also visual acuity and maintenance of anatomy. I think we also need to see more data on the drying effect and, and seeing how we can use eight milligram flibrocep in our practice. As Christina said, it's gonna 
uh, come out, uh, uh, you know, you're going to have a GA approval this summer and then a Flibersep high dose will come out at the same time, essentially. So we'll have multiple new agents. I think it's always good to have options and we'll see how this uh, agent performs. I think the patient I'm looking at will be the high knee patients. And if I can see improvement in anatomy with eight milligram, then I will be convinced that that this is a stronger agent. Uh, so yeah, more more to come, but looking at BCVA durability and also safety in the second year are some things I'm looking for. Great. Mark, you know, you look at this in the armamentarium, what we have, we have off-label of Aston. Uh, we currently don't have the on-label of Aston, as you mentioned yet, but we will have in the near future. Where does this high dose of Flibrisep fit into your treatment paradigm for patients, would you say? I mean, this is a million dollar question, right? So um, as Arsha mentioned, typically whenever a new agent comes out, I, it's the high need patient or, or, or frankly, it's the patient that might be well controlled at Q4, Q6 week dosing, tried multiple agents already. And I, I want to see if I can extend that patient. I always, well, I would love to see a little bit better drying effect because I believe anatomy. I have a hard time believing that the vision that I get in my clinic and if I see a nice, nice improvement in anatomy or a little longer durability, that I think to me would be a good sign that that would be an agent that I can go with. Um, ultimately, I'm not expecting better vision because that's unrealistic. Christina, you, I know your um, background obviously is with your MD, but you also have a, a, a business degree, I remember, right? And, and you've done some work in this area about economics of these things and everything else. What are your thoughts on high dose therapies versus traditional therapies from an economic standpoint? Do you have any comments about what that means for, for practices and payers? I think a lot of it, Rishi, is going to be coming down to pricing, right? And so we are very fortunate to have a lot of effective agents, but it's really hard to go up against off-label beplacizumab. And Mark talked about this earlier, that we are, as a community in general, um, you know, we turn to that drug a lot. So it's hard to say, but um, I guess if you're thinking broadly and thinking that the pricing may be in parallel with some the other agents that we have, uh, anytime you can reduce a, an injection for a patient, that's uh, potentially cost savings for the entire them. But more importantly, I think that sometimes we uh, think that, you know, a reduction, maybe one or two or three injections, like you see in Pulsar and Photon, may be very modest. And, and perhaps it is. And of course, we always wish we could do better. But you've done a lot of work in this uh, area, Rishi, with like the social impact of, yeah. of these injections for patients. And I'll tell you, I just thinking to my own patient population, reducing, you know, by two or three injections over the course of the year is incredibly meaningful to a lot of patients, not just from their, you know, not not wanting to get a needle in their eye, but also uh, the risks that are associated, even though they're low with intravitreal injections and all of the social burden that is carried with that. For example, someone having to come to the appointment with them, et cetera. So I think these longer durability agents to answer the question have many different benefits that potentially can be offered, including economic, but also to the entire societal system. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. That's a great point about those racial and socioeconomic disparities that exist in the population and where an injection or two saved a year can make a big difference, albeit that the cost might be slightly differential. That's going to be huge for them. So that's a really great point. So that's a great entree to Mark's presentation. So Mark, you know, you heard about the studies that were done for uh, these drug trials for uh, obviously for on-label um, bevacizumab. And I think one of the big misnomers that people remember in the community or think about in the community is that is this not, just not a biosimilar, Mark? So what, what can you tell us about what the differences are between on-label business map as part of these these program trials in NORS one, two, and three, and 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 uh, biosimilar, for example. No, oh, sure, great question. So, uh, but by definition, a biosimilar is is an agent that is modeled after an approved reference agent. And uh, the fact of the matter is, even though we use off-label bevacizumab all the time, there is no approved ophthalmic formulation of bevacizumab. So, by definition. There, this is not a biosimilar. This is the, the first time agent that this is an ophthalmic formulation. Number, number two, um, as I mentioned before in the talk, we, we sort of take it for granted. The, you know, the purity that comes with uh, ophthalmic formulation, the manufacturing, uh, all those things that come prepackaged um, when we use you know, uh, on-label medications such as ranibizumab or flibercept or, or, or you name it, it really isn't there with compounded uh, bevacizumab. So there, there is a certain risk that, that you take. So it's cert most certainly not a biosimilar. 
Um, not that there's anything wrong with being a bias similar, but there's definitely different. Great. Yep. Arshad, you know, when you have on-label bevacizumab and you've had off-label for years, how does this fit into your armamentarium for taking care of patients? I think, uh, Rishi, the, the main thing is safety and efficacy, right? So if you have an on-label agent, then you prefer that uh, compared to an off-label or compounded agent. The only issue becomes is the price. And I think, Christina, and you touched on it. I think if the pricing is very close to let's say an agent like, you know, flibrosub 8 milligram or frisimab with dual inhibition, then I think it becomes challenging to get approval from insurances in terms of, uh, you know, having this compared to second generation anti-VEGF as we like to call it. But if the pricing is closer or much less than, you know, second generation, then I think it's a meaningful advancement for the field where we can switch patients or start patients that we're going to be starting on compounding, compounded bevacizumab to this. So I think it's all going to depend on economics of the practice and, and insurance companies are going to be paying close attention to that uh, based on the price. Do we have to step through a compounded uh, bevacizumab to get to a branded bevacizumab, whether compounding will be available or not, because now we have an approved agent. So there's a lot of different questions. So I think it will all depend on, on the insurances, the payers, and the pricing, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Christina, tell me about the need for on-label bevacizumab. You know, we've used it for a while now, off-label. Is there truly a clinical need, or do you feel like we're, we're totally fine with what we have right now as an off-label agent? It's always hard to answer questions like that, Rishi, because like Mark covered so nicely, I do think there are some pertinent benefits that are very important. For example, you have one patient that ends up getting endophthalmitis or a group of patients like we've seen outbreaks over the years. And absolutely, is it worthwhile to try to avoid that? Sure, it is. But if you're coming down to numbers, those types of events generally are pretty rare. Um, so, you know, I think it's always nice to have an on-label product, right? And you avoid some of the risks associated with compounding. You avoid some of the medical legal issues that we always worry about, even though so many of us use off-label uh, off label bevacizumab. Uh, however, one of the things I do worry a little bit about, and, and Arshad alluded to it, is Will the accessibility of off-label off bevacizumab change once we have an on-label product? And I don't know what the answer to that is. It worries me a little bit because there's definitely pockets of our nation and, and world, of course, that depend heavily on off-label bevacizumab. And regardless of what the pricing may be, surely it's not going to be $50 or $75 a pop. I can pretty much predict that. Uh, and so that is a social concern that I do think about a lot. A lot of the questions and sort of the order that we approach these different agents as more comes into our toolbox, I think are honestly going to be dictated, at least in some part, by payers and some of the algorithms that are set. But uh, I do, I am curious to see how this will play into sort of the other options that we're going to have, biosimilars, other agents that are coming down the line, other on-label agents that are coming down the line, and of course, the off-label version of Bevacizumab. I'm just curious uh, if anyone has thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I think Sina brings a really good point that I failed to mention is this will be for neovascular AMD. We don't have trials for DME or RVO. So if you have compounded bevacizumab completely off the market because of this, what do we do with our patients with RVO and DME? That's just something to keep in mind. And, and to that point, Arshad, you know, there is NORS 4 and NORS 5 and NORS 6, which are looking at RVO and DME. So even though we don't have them in the imminent future, you know, they might also be coming down the line. So, um, but you're, you're right. We'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about other therapies. You know, you all are very uh, aware of therapies that are, are in the market or coming to market in pipeline. Tell me uh, one drug that may excite you. Uh, let's start off with Arshad. One drug that excites you in the pipeline that you're interested in seeing in practice because it may improve your outcomes or durability. It's a very tough question being involved with many of them, but I would put as a field gene therapy. I wouldn't put one drug. I think if we can have gene therapy, whether it's intravirtual, supracoroidal, subretinal for neovascular AMD or DR or geographic atrophy, anything like that, where you are one and done in a subset of patients and then others, you decrease treatment burden. I think 
that would be a meaningful advance in my opinion. Great, great comment. How about you, Mark? What would you say is a one area or class, let's put area, a class or drug where you think you'd be most interested in seeing it come to market because you, you think the preclinical data, the clinical data looks very, very good right now? Well, um, class-wise, I'd be interested to see the tyrosine kinase inhibitors only because that's durability and that's me having to inject the patients less frequently. And there's many shots on goal in this. There's multiple companies looking at this and different approaches, different deliveries. Um, but aside from class, I think we're entering the era of, of, of bispecific compounds. Mm-hmm. And bispecific compounds are just fascinating to me because now you get to have more than one toy. And Farisimab opened that door, but Farisimab will only be the first. Great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about you, Christina? This is uh, what's bad about going third is those other two responses. You can repeat, you can repeat <laughs> you know, the other. Don't worry. No pressure here. Gene therapy, I think, is phenomenal because it really gives us the most significant leap, potentially, in terms of reducing treatment burden, which a lot of these uh, trials are really after at this point. I was going to also say TKAs. I really like looking at different mechanisms of action. I like the broadness of that. Uh, so I'm going to go with OPT302, which uh, targets VEGF C and D, only because you know, it works sort of um, uh, in conjunction with our anti-VEGF-A agents. And I like that it's a different mechanism of action and potentially might allow us to raise the bar when it comes to efficacy rather than just looking at durability, which it might also offer. I like that potential, but of course we have to see what the trials show. That's wonderful. That's great. Good. Well, I, you know, this has been a fantastic roundtable discussion. You both all have presented some of the most cutting edge therapies we have to date uh, for these conditions. And, you know, I, as, as uh, somebody said tonight, we are very blessed in our field uh, to have agents that have such great track records. You know, I, my job now is quite broad. And sometimes I talk to people in other specialties like rheumatology and oncology, and they get excited when they have somebody who has, you know, a 10% better response or maybe lives three or four months longer uh, and I look at this and I think we are doing phenomenal work here. And again, part and parcel to all of you on this roundtable who do all of this amazing research each and every day that puts this field forward. So thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for watching this program. I hope you found this educational. Uh, for those watching, we've covered a lot of topics today. Obviously, these are therapies that are either in pipeline or, or soon to be out in your practice. And I'm sure we're going to be coming back at some point and talking about a year later, what these therapies have done to us. So I appreciate the discussion and please uh, stay tuned for additional questions uh, to complete your CME credits. And thank you for watching. Good night. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity was jointly provided by Clinical Patient Educators Association and Ivista Medical Education Incorporation. This activity was supported by an independent medical educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporation, Apellis Pharmaceuticals, Iveric Bio, and Outlook Therapeutics. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.